Back and better than ever, Clubhouse Podcast, Episode 4, Kyle Bailey, Roman Harper. Busy Saturday here, and and before we get into a lot of the things that we want to talk about, I know we wanted to talk a bit about the NFL-CBA negotiations. Yes. And and this is particularly um, important to you, not just as a former NFL guy, but, uh, well, yes, actually that, because you're not playing now, but this new CBA proposal also has an impact on retired and, and former players in the NFL where are we at right now with this? Because a lot of high-profile guys are saying they're going to vote no, but then Ryan Fitzpatrick and Nate Soldier, these guys are saying they're going to vote yes. The NFL is doing something pretty strategic here where they're, they're really pointing at and you know focusing their attention on the bottom rung of the salaries in this league to try to whip up enough votes to get this CBA passed. Yeah, it's not like where we have our, you know, our you know, country right now where you vote and you got like the delegates and all these other things, right? So – but in the, in the NFL, like, every player's vote counts the same. It's not about how big your state is and how many other things and the electoral house. It doesn't roll like that. It's literally one per one. So even though you're Aaron Rodgers, your vote is the same as the last guy on the roster. Like, so there's no electoral college. It's just a popular vote. That's it's it. It's just a popular vote. All right. And as I'm looking at this whole deal, I just want these guys to understand the ramifications of the yes vote because this ownership group – which they're always really smart at and understand the deal that this new CBA is proposing that it's going to really affect those guys that are in the retired part of their lives. Like the total impairment that they're going to try and take away or really help to like really pretty much lower the money and get it almost out of there and almost impossible to get. A lot of these guys are really hurting. Look, I, and I, I'm wanting to speak about it because I'm on this platform right now. So I just want to share it to everybody else that it's a lot of things going on behind the scenes that's really not going to help these guys going forward. And that they, they, the ownership group is offering the younger guys now, right? The, low, the younger, lower the bottom roll type guys like, hey, if you sign this deal, if you play 10 years under this new CBA, when you're retired at 64, you'll be able to get one point something million dollars the rest of your life every year. Everybody's like, man, that's great. Of course I want to do that. And they understand that if you can divide them, but that's going to like divide them and then get them to say yes for themselves – and now it would really affect the guys in the past. And understand, I just want them to understand that it's been guys that walked through these doors in this locker room before you, and it's going to be a lot more guys that walk in and out of these doors when you're gone as well. And just doing the overall benefit for everybody and not just for the now or not for yourself. But that that's what ownership, I think, is banking on. They are. Because you remember how you were at 23, 24, 25 yep. years old early in your career. You were hungry. I was but hungry. You, but, you hungry. That, but I wasn't listening to all the things that are going on in exactly. the meetings. They understand that. A lot of guys in this room or in the meetings, when they're doing and we're talking about all these things that are important to us, a lot of guys, they're just trying to hurt and get home. And I'm just trying to get to wherever I'm trying to go. You're not actually trying to put into this, right? And then, and so often when you look up, by the time you're looking up, you're actually really trying to pay attention to and something that can really affect you, it's, it's too late. And uh, not, I, I just I just want them to really sit down and really talk about it. Look, I, I'm not an, an economist by trade. My wife <laughs> used to be, and uh, you know I've done a little reading on the subject. But I think all of us have a, a decent grasp on this. At least we probably should. Everything is you know when it comes to business in the private sector, there's always going to be some struggle between uh, labor and capital, right? It's right. always going to be there. And when you're you're negotiating a collective bargaining agreement. Um, it, it's not easy, as we've talked no. about. You're, you're trying to negotiate a deal. If you're DeMora Smith in the NFLPA, you're trying to negotiate a deal on behalf of you know 1,500 to 2,000 guys at any given time, and all of those guys are in varying stages of their careers, yep. uh, making various amounts of money with various yep. time left. The average NFL career is three and a half years. 
But there is specific to this negotiation, and I think a lot of other CBA negotiations in the past in other sports, but this one's notable because it's right in front of our face. Right. This is a very populist approach by the ownership in the NFL. You know, the, the NFL ownership, a, a group of 31 billionaires, you know, and, and their investors are trying to take a very populist approach to targeting the guys at the bottom of the rung, making the least amount of money with the least amount of time served, thinking that they can whip up votes that way by doing things like, you know, a minimum salary increase of 20% starting this season. That's huge. It's huge, right? But, for, so, guys that, for guys that's not making that much. Exactly. So the, the owners, you and I were reading and talking about a piece that Christopher Gasper wrote in the, in the Boston Globe. The owners, as he puts it, will gladly make concessions like that one or, you know, the, the, who, like players who sign one-year deals for less than $1.75 million won't count against the compensatory draft pick formula or increasing first and second round restricted free agent tenders by $125,000 apiece uh, next year and the year after. So they're doing these things to say, hey, you guys that are on the fringe, you young dudes just in the league, you undrafted free agents, you know, who got, you guys who aren't guaranteed to make it to a second contract, here's some money. Just right. All you got to do is vote yes. That's all you got to do. That's all you got to do. And, and they understand that those guys are like, oh, yeah, because it's all about me and I'm trying to get – mine for as much as I can for when I can never mind when they finally do get theirs which, which you know however many of them actually do right it becomes it, much more punitive at the top they, they, they don't they're trying to the CBA the ownership side of this wants to make it more punitive for guys to hold out they want to make all yes. holdout fines non-rescindable you can't take them back they want to dock holdouts uh, years of service time not only that agency. but if you get caught with a, a DUI they said you're going to be an automatic three game suspension but do they hold the the people on top the ownership and all those groups up top to the same standard. That's what I want to know as well. No. Exactly. They, <laughs> they're saying not. it's an automatic three-game suspension. Jim Irsay got pulled over with, <laughs> with cash and drugs, <laughs> prescription pills and everything. Bob Kraft got you know caught with getting a rub and tug you know, at some place in Jupiter, Florida. We haven't heard a damn thing about that all year long, right? So, no. you know, look, these guys are billionaires negotiating with millionaires, and the guys who start with a B are pretty much always going to win out for the most part. Right. You know, but what 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 do you need if you're the players to win? You need strength in numbers, you right? You need strength and in right numbers. And right now, the ownership's trying to divide and conquer. Yes, they are. And look, and then they're offering things like, oh, well, you know, we're going to barely test for marijuana and stuff. I'm like, dude, what does that matter? What? But I want to know what the players want. What do the players want? Is that like, that's interesting because you're right. I was going to point that out too. The league I, they, they've been holding on to the marijuana thing, yeah, right, a, as a negotiating chip or a bargaining chip for a while now. But it's like if you think that's such a, a, a you know a, a, a golden nugget for these <laughs> players, like that's reflective of society's opinion about this stuff now. Like you're not gifting them anything. No, by exactly. This. And get, the players are smoking anyway. Right. The players smoke anyway, and 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 that that approach to me is also kind of reflective of the way they view these players. Hey, we know you want to smoke your weed, so <laughs> you know, we'll let you smoke your weed since you're a bunch of potheads, right? That like that's it's reflective of that to me too. I agree. It, it's just how they look at players and how they the 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 managing of all this and how they the things that they are putting out there, and they understand that the media controls it, right? You don't ever hear about what the players want. And that doesn't get out to the media. All you hear about is what the owners are presenting to the players. And the players have a yes or a no, and they have to decide. And then if they don't decide to take this, then the owners are going to be like, well, we're that's our, that's our best offer. And why does that all get out? Why do you hear all those things? Because the owners do a great job of controlling the narrative of how it gets out. They understand what they want to put out there. And they have no product without the players. 
You must understand that. And it's it's scary because when they had this lockout, the strike back in whatever, the 80s, I guess the players crossed over the picket line. And then that's when it kind of started to unravel. And they understand that the players, at the end of the day, they've never been able to stick together for a long amount of time to really be able to get something done. So with that, the last thing I have on this, I, I can appreciate guys like Ryan Fitzpatrick, but even like a Nate Solder, for instance, right? He is listening to the guys in his locker room and voting on their behalf, right? That's that. I respect that. I'm not saying that you have to agree. In cheap New England, huh? Well, no, I know, but, <laughs> I, but I get it. Don't get me wrong. Oh, he's in, he's in New, New York. New York I, I, but I'm saying if you've got a locker room full of guys that are telling you they want you to vote yes, I mean, don't you have an obligation to represent that, uh, that, that opinion? I mean, I, again, we don't have to agree with it, but I guess you have the obligation to, to represent the opinion of the guys in the locker room, right? Well, yeah, if you're, if you're that rep, yes. Right. But it, it, when it comes down, it's already past that, Kyle. It is to the voting stage exactly, where everybody right. has their own vote. So you are your own individual vote. It's just like, just like what we do here in America, right? You, you got your own vote, and it counts. Uh, it counts a lot more in this thing because it is one for one. It doesn't matter. There is no electoral college. I, I just want them to understand that the total and permanent damage for a lot of these guys that played way back when, those benefits will be cut tremendously by these guys. And they're saying that you can't get total and permanent if you have a Social Security total and permanent, like through the government. So if you have any kind of disability uh, through the government, you will not be able to get it through the NFL as more, anymore as well. And a lot of these guys, this is the only money that they have. This is the only way they make money. And they didn't make the kind of money that these players are making right now. Like, they didn't make that kind of money back in the day. So I just want them to be uh, cognizant of that and just, you know, it's bigger than you. Well, I, I don't think – players say, you know, we want guaranteed contracts. They got guaranteed – I don't, I don't think you have to – I don't think that's going to happen. Well, see, that's the thing. That's you – know, you get guaranteed money in basketball. You've got guaranteed money in baseball. Football players, a lot of them have, have angled toward or wanted guaranteed contracts. I, I like this is one area where I understand the owners saying, I don't know about this. Well, the star players can do it, and you got to do shorter contracts, right? Because Kirk Cousins did it. It's not like it can't be done. Well, sure. Kirk Cousins did it. He did it three years, some, some, whatever that number was, fully guaranteed, like every single bit of it. Julio Jones just signed a huge extension like 60-something million dollars, and like 60-something of it was all fully guaranteed. So it can be happening. I think that is star players will get more and more of that. They're just going to sign shorter deals and continue to bet on themselves. That is okay. Um, I'm with that because at least I know what I'm getting myself into and I know which money, how much money I'm getting. As long as I understand that and I got it, then I'm cool. The only thing we don't like as football players are the surprises where, you know, I signed this contract for four years and after two years, you guys are like, all right, I'm releasing you. We don't want to pay you anymore. Like, I thought we signed this deal. So, other than that, man, that that's the be- the worst part of it. But Sports. I don't think they're going to get that, especially with they want to put this 17 game on them, all right, on the players. If if you do that, then the players should re- automatically respond with something else. Well, and not just like, okay, well, you're going to give me, you know, one more percentage point of the total revenue. It's uh, it's convoluted. It, it, and, and look, it's um, it's not a, it's not the fun part of football. No, not at but all. But when you make your living in football, it really matters. Like this, this is the profession, and negotiating a good That's deal such for a everybody. Great point when you put it like that, I, it just it matters. Like go, it doesn't matter what you do, negotiating mm-hmm. a good deal for yourself, or you know, if it's on behalf of those around you who work with you, it's really important to do. Right. And uh, let's let's rewind from that though. Yeah. Uh, let's rewind from that because Ready. this is intense, and and arguing about two other parties, you know, negotiating money right now. 
is all fun, but I want to go all the way back to long before you became a two-time Pro Bowler, <laughs> before you got to Alabama, and when you were probably still in high school. I don't even know the answer to this question. And this is always an interesting question for me, too, because um, so many of, of the guys that I know that played in the NFL, football's been their only job. Like, some guys, I mean, literally, <laughs> I mean, some guys started playing football in high school. Yeah. They got a scholarship to college. Yeah. Um, you know, they go off to a four-year scholarship to play football, and you know, they're not really working in the summer, a lot of them either, because they're training in the summer, they're taking summer classes, whatever else. True. I, got, I know plenty of guys who before they – once they got out of football, it's like their first real job, part-time or full-time. But not, yeah. not everybody, too. What was your first job growing up? My first job, I worked at the uh, Prattville Car Wash um, PCW, baby. How old were you? I was, what, 15? No, 16 and 17. I worked at my two summers. And then going into my senior year, I didn't. Um, but yeah, that was it, bro. I, I worked at a car wash. I was I vacuumed and I washed in the back, washed the cars in the back, and I vacuumed. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You were detailing cars. I was, man. I wanted to work out front, man. Where I could do like the final details and stuff like that, because that's where most of the tips were being handed out at. So uh, that's what I wanted to do. But I got tipped every now and then just because you know if I did a good job vacuuming and what I wanted to do. This is what really got me to like so. It'd be hot in the summers, dude, like out there. And we have like some girls and stuff working there with us too. And, you know, it was cool. We had a great group of people that was working there. It was like a really cool group. Because one of my old football teammates, the one that got me to come there, he like was always on me about what I need to do, how I need to vacuum, blah, blah, blah. So I would be like no sleeves out there because it was so hot. So I'd always make sure I do some curls and stuff. <laughs> I had these 25-pound dumbbells in my, in my room that my brother would used to have. So I would be doing some curls. Right before I go to work, just so I could be like on D's, you know what I mean? Yeah, that See, was it. So that that was the job. That was the job before football took over. Yes. Wow. And then is that the only one? That's the only job oh, I've ever God, had, man. You, Outside of football, and now I do TV and radio. I, I mean, I count that too. But yeah, that that was. Well, it. I know, like that. That's the post career, you know, career. That, yeah, that's so funny though. That's but a, yeah, that's my only job. How about you, Kyle? What was your first job? Okay, first job I can tell you easily. But if we had to sit here and tell you all my jobs, I don't think we'd ever leave this room. <laughs> Um, cause I, I, I mean, look, I've just, I'm that, I've done a lot of different stuff. My first job, I was, uh, 14 and, uh, working for the early in the workforce. Oh yeah. Well, I was working for the local rec center and oh. I was, I was a scoreboard keeper during basketball games, like youth basketball, yep. adult basketball. Uh, I was either keeping the scorebook or I was keeping the, uh, the scoreboard. And then I, you know, I could not quite at 14. I wasn't quite old enough to officiate, but I ended up. I ended up being on the payroll with the the town rec center for like six years, I think, seven years. But I, it wasn't always constant, right? Because I yeah. was in high school, but then I was in college. But that, I was always refereeing basketball games, umpiring baseball games. Um, and then when I got a little bit older, I would um, work for the maintenance the side of things. And like that was my summer job once I got into college. So I started out working and doing things like keeping the scoreboard, keeping the scorebook. And, and then I got a little bit older, so they'd let me start refereeing kids' basketball games. And uh, then I got a little bit older, and it was, hey, we need some help on the maintenance crew. <laughs> and so I, I had, uh, I had like, I had my driver's license at that point. And so summers, like late high school, and I think my freshman year of college, I would still umpire in the evenings and you know officiate basketball games. But I was out with the, the tr- I was out in the work truck all day, hauling around mowers and weed eaters, and taking care of all the baseball fields and the local parks in town. Yeah, you were a real grind. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but, it, but it was like but the thing was it was me and my boys. It was like four of us. Oh yeah, so y'all were just always hanging. So there. we just had two work trucks, two trailers, a whole bunch of equipment, and like we had to get our work done. But we went out. We that was fun. Like we'd go out there, we'd race lawnmowers. 
Uh, we, we flipped a couple into creeks. I can't tell you how many times I got stung by yellow jackets or, um, you know, nearly bitten by snakes when I was weed eating a creek bed or, I mean, just being out there lining baseball fields and getting them like tournament ready for the big tournaments right, in right. the summer. So like it was, that's, it's a cool first job. That is it was a really cool, cool first job. Did you learn how to like cut a design into the field? Yeah. Absolutely. See? Yeah. See, those are skills that you could take with you the rest of your life. No, Most people do not know that skill. I love it. I'm just letting you know. Well, because plus, like, imagine has. me, like, 17-year-old me. Not just, like, I'm just, I'm, we're not talking about a push mower or, like, you know, the, the old classic John Deere ride mowers. We're talking about the zero-turn, yeah. you know, the big ones with the, the massive four-foot decks. Yeah. You could pop wheelies on those things, and we did all, <laughs> all the time, man. It was so much fun. And we were out messing around one day. And we were getting a, a baseball complex ready for uh, the Dixie Boys tournament. I don't know if y'all, yeah, I'm sure, I mean, I know they did in Alabama because mm-hmm. Alabama teams would, would play in these tournaments. But uh, we were out getting a field ready one day, and we had the big John Deere tractor out with a front loader on it. And we decided we we're going to race it. And my buddy's in the big John Deere, and he hits the wrong lever, basically, as he's about to turn and take off. And instead of taking off, and this is his first time on it, he raises the, the, the bucket on the front, but he's so close to the chain link fence on the third base side that he catches it and rips the entire third baseline fence out of the ground, about 25 feet in each direction. Now, keep in mind, we got a tournament starting in like three hours at this baseball complex, <laughs> and this dude has just ripped up the entire fence in front of the bleachers and behind third base. We all thought we were fired. We all thought we were fired. And we had to get an emergency crew over there. We're, we're getting the fence back in as fast as we can. We got it done, and nobody knew any better. Really? We got it done. Nobody knew any better. And then the last, the other, the only other story that I still tell people because I still can't believe this happened. We were, um, it was, I forget, it was winter maybe. I think we were doing some stuff out in the the big warehouse, and we had a a, a, a BB gun, an air rifle, the ones that you pump. And yeah, we yeah, all, the we, pump. Yep, yep, we pump. all pump them way too yep, many yep. times. You shouldn't pump them twenty times; they're going to explode. Well, we had these these aerosol cans that we were shooting because they would explode if you hit them, right? I mean, we were idiot kids. So we're lining them up and shooting them, and I hand a, the, the air rifle to my buddy after I hit mine to go set two or three up for him or me, I forget which, but I leaned down to set it up, and it had been pumped like 20 times, and he thought it would be funny to shoot me in the foot with it. And so he shoots it, and it goes through my shoe and an inch deep into my foot. And to this day, it's still in there. Oh, my God. And so I get, sh- I get shot with an air rifle. I drop. I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, I probably sounded like I was dying. I had to get up, hang the foot out the side of my truck as I'm driving myself to the hospital because I'm like, it's the, the, the my sock. It looked like Kurt Schilling's sock. Yeah. It was so soaked in like, blood by that point. Like you're about to die. Yeah. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that we did at my first job. I like it. I mean, if it makes you feel any better, I, I, I was driving a stick because I was one of the few people that could drive a stick. And, you know, I, you know first gear is usually up and to the left. And on this particular diesel truck, that was reverse. Oh, no. And I definitely put a trailer hitch through the car that was behind me. Oh, no. I felt so bad. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> Dude. That sucks. That does suck. I, right. that, that reminds me, first two weeks I was there, I jackknifed a trailer. First week I was on it. First time First time I was hauling a trailer, cut it too hard, jackknifed that bad boy. Jackknifed it. It was not good. They were not happy with me. So there you go. That that's that's the first job segment of the podcast. I'm glad we got that off our chest. I'm no, too I'm glad. I'm uh. too. Um, let me just real quick the the coronavirus thing that I wanted to get in just for a minute because you and I were both up late last night watching that that Lakers Bucks game. Great game. Lakers win one thirteen one oh three, and LeBron James sure looked like he wanted to send a message last night to oh, to Giannis that. and Tedekumpo. He did that. He did. He had a huge night, and and it was a great game. 
LeBron went to Terminator mode there in the third quarter, and it was just fantastic to watch. But after the game, LeBron was asked about the recent reports that the NBA, like a lot of other leagues and a lot of other events in the country right now, are planning for the coronavirus to force them to play or hold events or play games with no fans in attendance in empty arenas. It's something we we knew March Madness was possibly in danger of last week because the NCPA has been telling the NCAA, you have to be prepared for this. South by Southwest down in Austin got canceled yesterday. Uh, Google canceled a summit, a huge summit out in Southern California. Mm. Amazon's canceling stuff. All of Italy's professional sporting events will be played with no fans in attendance until April 3rd. I, I, I think that there's been a lot of bad reporting. I think the media hasn't exactly shown the best side of, of how to really contextualize what's happening. I'm in no way going to tell people, don't worry, this doesn't matter, it's not dangerous, because I can't say that responsibly. Mm-hmm. But LeBron James was asked about this last night, and the NBA having plans to possibly play in empty arenas, and LeBron James said he will not play <laughs> in empty arenas. I, I don't – what do you think of that? I, I, for, so, uh, look, I, I, I'm going to take this in the, the – so I'm going to just talk about what LeBron said, all right? Let's talk about what LeBron said. LeBron saying that he will not play. I don't think LeBron – I think LeBron understands the way in which the, the words that he says, like how, how much weight it holds. Right. I think he does understand that. But I don't think sometimes he – he's like, you know what? Maybe I should just, like, think about everybody else before I say something. I think he just thinks about it from his own self. And he's just like, you know what? I wouldn't play because he's never played before and not without a crowd. And I think he was very honest and candid. But at the end of the day, like, LeBron, you're going to make the whole NBA go out and play games now, whether it's dangerous or not, and that's just because LeBron doesn't want to do it. And the NBA understands, like, it's such a player-driven league. Like, if LeBron says he's not going to do something, then that's going to affect everybody else in the league as well. Well, of course. But for a guy who's been in the league as long as he has – and who has the kind of leadership, the but leadership role that he has. he says these things. He says these things, and then we always look back like, LeBron, like, you know, like, when you say it, it really holds everybody. You hold everybody to that. Well, I, I think, I don't know. Like, I don't know if he was pandering to fans <laughs> a little bit or not. Where, because he said, quote, we play games without the fans. Nah, impossible. I ain't playing if you don't have fans in the crowd. That's who I play for. I play for my teammates. I play for the fans. That's what it's all about. So if I show up to the arena and there ain't no fans in there, I ain't playing, so they can do what they want to do. End quote. Like that's, I get it. Like he, I, I can, he's trying to to pander to the fans a little bit, but also it just sounds like something a really defiant twenty six year old LeBron James would say, as opposed to a guy who's you know thirty four years old and supposed to be a leader in the league. Like that, when you say things like that, the young guys in this league who look up to you, they pay attention. Like that stuff, it, it reverberates. It has ripple effects, and you just can't go out flat outs before you consult the commissioner. <laughs> You know, or people in the league, so I ain't playing. Did you talk to Adam Silver about that first? Because there's still going to be tens of millions of fans willing to watch at home. And you know what? When you put it in that that perspective and that lens of, like, you know what, all the other players, when LeBron says he ain't playing, then they're going to be like, well, LeBron ain't playing. I ain't playing. I ain't playing. I'm not going to do it. And then you're like, oh, yeah, you know what? But I don't think LeBron ever thinks about how everybody else looks at him at times when he answers these questions, like, wholeheartedly and candidly at times. He just says what's on his mind. And – it's like a gift and a curse because of who he is. Like he's honest and he speaks out on a lot of things, even though he might not always be fully educated on some of these things before he speaks on them. He just says what's on his mind and he gives his opinion on some things and tells it from the heart. But it's so bad because of who he is 
and he represents so many people. And like you said, he was just probably just trying to appease to the fans, not knowingly that like mm, you're kind of shooting yourselves in the foot. You're shooting us in the foot, LeBron, because we kind of like trying to protect you guys and keep some of these right, some of these potential carriers. They're doing away this from to this. protect you. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, no, nah, I'm good. I don't want. I'm good. I ain't playing. Like. If you do that, then I won't show up. It was really immature. I mean, that, that, honestly, like, and I'm, I've, I've been up, down, all over the map on LeBron James throughout the course of his career. I've settled into being somebody who you and I are both. We're Kobe stands. It is yeah. what it is. We've all, we've never run from that. I, he, that's my guy. That's your guy. We're Black Mamba till the day we die. But you know, I, I respect the hell out of LeBron's game. Obviously, it's impossible not to. And <laughs> and I think there's been times where he's been treated unfairly. I also think there have been times, and a lot of times recently too, that he just needs to shut up and stop making things worse on himself because that that doesn't help anybody. All he has to say is, you know what, I'll cross that bridge when we get there. Right. That's literally that's all he it. has to say. That's, that's all you have to say. <laughs> that's it. I'm just, I'm just so surprised that he he said that. And maybe maybe he walks it back this afternoon. We'll probably <laughs> we'll probably get out of here and he's going to walk it back and shoot around today or whatever else. That that's probably what's going to happen. I just thought that was stunning. But I want your perspective on this because I've never run through the tunnel into you know sixty, seventy, eighty thousand screaming my name. How weird would that be? Like I've got a pretty good sense of what it looks like and and how it would sound but just imagine playing a game that counts like uh, you you played for the saints and the panthers imagine playing in bank of america or the superdome like imagine running out into nothing to play a game that counts not only that but like shit man there there's no uh there's no crowd noise right. there's no there's no it's like there's no emotion you make a good play like i don't know man it's so weird because you're so used to feeding off of the emotion of the fans and Feeling that energy from them because that, that it does matter. It, it matters when you've got a home game or you're on the road and it's something about making the home crowd boo while, while you're playing against them. Like, those things to me matter. And it'd be so weird not to go out there, see the smiles and high-fiving the fans and, and still talking about this game is, like, for real and it's not practice. So emotionally, how do you really, like, get your mind psyched up enough to, like, hey, this is really, this is really go time? And I really got to tackle this guy, and I got to do this, and I got to do that. But there's nobody here, and nobody can watch it. And it's really quiet, and it's you just try not to go to sleep on the sidelines, okay? I, I, right. That's, <laughs> like, that's the thing, because like we, we joke about some of these, uh, like, like the college atmospheres especially, right? Or in, in the NFL, like the NFL's dealt with some attendance issues the last couple of years, and especially like late in the season, if the skins are terrible or oh, if yeah. the dolphins are bad, like you'll show up and there'll be 8,000 people in the stands. But that's still enough to make some noise. The St. Louis Rams was the prime example for me. Was it that bad? Man, we go up there to that dome late in the year. It's like nobody in there. Really? Nobody. I I went. We played against Detroit as well when they were the the 0-16 team, right? They had Calvin Johnson. He was like the only thing they had. And they were like 0-16. You could literally hear the conversations like in the stands, like right behind us. It, you could just hear them talking. They, it was just weird. It's very quiet all the calls you can hear coaches from the sidelines you can hear them too right it's just a total different feel and it's not that fun it sounds awful <laughs> like and like I think we talk about some of this stuff more in, in college football like I don't in the SEC you know there's yeah, not I, I'm I'm spoiled what I was well that but like I'm sure Vandy could be kind of a ghost town sometimes but you know. no not really though to Alabama because all the Alabama people just show up oh, that's a true. lot of Alabama See, fans that's, in, yeah, in, that's tennis, in Nashville and 
Alabama fans travel, so like it's still packed. It's just all Alabama fans, and that's that's how we are, but were yeah. for the longest time at mm-hmm. Virginia Tech. That you know we we had a great reputation of traveling. Right. So even if we went to Boston College in Chestnut Hill, they don't care about Boston College football <laughs> up there. <laughs> you know, no no offense to Luke Keekley or Matt Ryan or anybody or Doug Flutie, but they don't. I mean, it's the. I mean, it, you name three, they've been playing ball up there a long time. Well, right. You know, but so but again, like you know, it's it's the Patriots, the Sox, the Celtics, the Bruins, and it's then, a professional team. And then it's maybe pro- if yeah. Boston. College is good. They might care enough to show up, or if Clemson's in town, you know. But that it's it's like a it's like going to a library. Going to play Duke at Wallace Wade used to be kind of like playing in a library <laughs> when they were really really bad. And guys will tell you that's that's more difficult to play in it than is. running into a stadium where everybody's booing you because you got to get yourself ready. Right. It's n- you're not gonna have the crowd or anybody else to like. Okay, we're ready. Yeah. No, it's all it's all you. It would be like when I was in college early in my career playing on that Jefferson Pilot game. Like the ten thirty kickoff uh-huh. in the morning. Oh. oh, what time did you have to get up for those games? Dude, four a.m. Like, like like six. <laughs> I mean, we're eating breakfast at like six, like pregame. Like, dude, I mean, like the whole. I'm like, bro, it's terrible. Six thirty. You're like trying to get ready for a game. I'm like, dude, I barely slept last night. That's like, terrible. Well, yeah, you probably shouldn't have gone out though. I didn't go out. I know, probably not the night before games. Right? No, they, no, no. They probably had you in a hotel they, somewhere. They didn't? had us in a hotel. Yeah. You know I mean, and but I, I did go out a couple of times on like a Thursday night when we weren't supposed to. But yeah, yeah, yeah that was all good. Well, I just I want to see how they because this coronavirus stuff. Again, it's interesting, man. It continues to. You can't just sit up here and passively say like it's not going to. Just don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I think you got to be. I'd rather be overprotective or try and do things too much than too little you, you know the guy is not enough then it's it's too far gone you should, the guy uh dr drew you know you know dr drew mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. he's an actual doctor but he spent most of his <laughs> career on tv and like doing mtv stuff and i think he did the pregnancy tests on somebody said on uh teen mom on mtv like this dude's done all sorts of stuff in his life but he went viral last week screaming at the media he was like, shut up and stop covering the damn coronavirus because you don't know what the hell you're talking about that's true and and they are making it worse you know, because you turn on the headlines and you see 3,000 people have died globally from the coronavirus, which is very sad. It's extremely sad. But what they don't tell you are the numbers of people who've contracted it and recovered it and, and completely recovered. Right. That number's far larger. You know what they're not telling you is the context of, you know, who's dying. People that were very elderly yep. or people who already had health complications yep. Yep. like that, yep. that. Those sorts of things are contextualized. And so I think there is a level of excessive freak out. But I do think, to your point, it's got to be taken seriously. And I completely respect the leagues for doing that. That's why I have an issue with what LeBron did. Because while I think it is a little bit overblown, you know, and I think that these things can be contained and some of the freakout is unnecessary, people have died. And it needs to be handled with care. And, and they're trying want, to protect you. Yeah, you don't want to get this in your locker room either. Cause no. They, you know what I'm saying? Like, Dude, speaking of, <laughs> check, check this shit out. I'm, I'm, on a, I'm on a tangent right now. So I'm sitting at home last night. We need dinner. Right, my wife and I. It's Friday night. I don't want to go back out. Had a long day, and I, don't, I try not to Uber Eats too much because that stuff's a ripoff. But I get a Postmates email. They're offering non-contact deliveries now because of the coronavirus. How how do you do that? I don't know. I did. I, I don't know how it exactly works. But I, it sounds like people have, they're they're not eating out right now. They're not ordering food. They don't want random strangers touching their food on the way to their house. So people aren't even ordering food. My wife's cooked for us every night this week because she doesn't want grubby you know fingers touching the food. And so now they're offering non-contact deliveries with Postmates because it sounds like all the rideshare companies, Uber, Postmates, Lyft, they're all getting hit because you don't want to cry, you don't want to climb in somebody's grimy ass car if you don't know who they are. They said that airlines are going to lose 
billions and billions of dollars yeah. for because of the coronavirus this year. Like like they're gonna be in they're gonna lose so much money off of this. I, I'm I don't know, man. I don't have the answers. I'm just gonna continue to wash my hands and uh and I'm I'm really kind of excited because I I've heard like it's really not infecting a lot of uh, black people. So <laughs> oh I, really? Yeah. <laughs> Some about the melanin in our skin. I did not know that. Yeah, man. You got to look it up. It's it's been a couple articles, so I'm believing that. Uh, <laughs> that's reassuring for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's reassuring. Kyle, for you. I love you, brother. But it is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, speaking of the latest news in sports, sports headlines. We, we have gone so off the rails in sports in 2020 that now we are reporting on uh, sports media trades. It's only three months in. I know. And here <laughs> Now, this is not the first time, but like we're, here we are. Every sport's got its own you know, hot stove, uh, rumor mill, trade mill type stuff, and now sports media is no different. Al Michaels, ESPN, reportedly pushing with, with NBC for a trade for Al Michaels to pair him with Peyton Manning in the Monday Night Football booth. And on top of that, Monday Night Football, ESPN – is reportedly willing to give Peyton Manning a little bit more money than what Tony Romo got to stay at CBS. That so first of all, because when you told me this earlier, I was like, I like so when you say trade, like what does that mean? You're like, no, 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 like they really trade him. Like, yeah, he like gets something in common. I'm like, I didn't even know that could happen. Yep. And I mean, ESPN's got to be really. I'm not gonna say desperate, but. I mean, Peyton Manning has never even done this before. I know he's got a great personality, and he's, I'm sure he'll be great. It's just crazy to me that this guy is going to come off the couch and going to be making more than Tony Romo. I mean, now, if you're a quarterback in the NFL, your second career path could be awesome if you have any kind of personality. Just understand <laughs> that. Like, well, I, here, here's my question for you, though. Can Monday Night Football, the institution, even be revived? You know what I mean? Because Monday Night Football used to be an enormous deal. Monday Night Football has not been as big a deal for a while now as it used to be. And by that, I mean it's, it's not appointment television the way that it used to be. You talk to, like, bar and restaurant owners. Monday nights used to be packed in bars and restaurants to go watch the Monday Night Football game. Because everybody can watch it now from home. Well, right. There's, there's that. But also the fact that a lot, a lot of these Monday Night games for They're the past couple good. of years, they got bad. They got They're really not bad. Good. No, yeah, but, like, when you when you guarantee every team has to have a Monday night game, right? It used to wasn't it wasn't always like that. Like they just had like the best games on Monday night football. Now they have it to where the best teams, like every team has to have a Monday night game. So some of these matchups, you're looking at them, you're like, dude, why do I want to go watch the Jets play Cincinnati? Like it's just not neither team's good and it, the football's the quality is not gonna be good. So it doesn't I don't care. Who's announcing or who's talking about two bad teams? It doesn't make the product any better, no matter who's talking about it. So I, I applaud ESPN for trying to do something, but at the end of the day, if the product's not good, it doesn't matter who's in the booth calling it. I'm that's the thing. I, and if they want to spend this kind of money on Peyton Manning, fine. Go I mean, ahead. It, it's capitalism. Well, that, it's, not we, only we've that. Right. About not that. not only that, but. I mean, they've, they've gone down that road before, and they've made a mistake plenty of times, overpaying for talent. And I'm not saying Peyton's not worth it, because Peyton Manning's really good in front of a camera. He is. Uh, I don't know that he'll take to this right away, but I think he's gifted and talented enough that he will absolutely become very good at it very quickly. But ESPN, I mean, there's already been two major rounds of layoffs at ESPN in the past several years. And and it, it stemmed from over-leveraging themselves, over-committing themselves to – overpaying for things that weren't necessary to overpay for. And so you got a lot of people who got laid off 
And a large part of that was these massive bloated salaries for guys that didn't quite move the needle in a way ESPN thought they would or maybe just didn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so if you're Al Michaels and Peyton gets 18 to $20 million to come over, what's Al Michaels getting, right? Is he getting Jim Nance money, $10 million a year to come do that? Is that what the thing's going to be? Like, <laughs> I mean, you did trade if, for if him. If you're trading, is he, you, you, you get his current contract? You, know like, <laughs> you did trade for me. You did. You did <laughs> trade. So, like, you, you bringing my NBC contract over, or are we negotiating something new? Because once upon a time, let's remember, you brought this up, Al Michaels has already been traded once in his please career. T- please share with the people. Yeah, he's been this. traded once in his career. He got traded for Oswald the Rabbit. Oswald the Rabbit was the precursor to Mickey Mouse, and uh, it was I think Oswald the Rabbit was created back in the 1920s. But he was sort of he was the he was the Mickey Mouse before Mickey Mouse, and it meant a lot to the people at Disney. And when uh, they were pursuing Al Michaels in exchange for him, they wanted Oswald the Rabbit back, and that's what they got. So this would be the second time that Al Michaels was actually traded in his sports media career, which is absolutely bizarre. But that's where we are now. And and they might just Kyle, can I just give you a hand clap right there for doing your research, <laughs> dropping some knowledge on me and the rest of these listeners about the media frenzy of like being traded and just the open knowledge that you have of this. I mean, well, I'm just I'm fascinated by it. I really like. And, and, I'm beyond fascinated. I don't know. I was you told me something about this 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 rabbit earlier. I'm like, what? Yeah, like that's the thing, and it's a really interesting story because it's happened before, but it wasn't really all that notable then. Al Michaels is known for his call of a miracle on ice, mm-hmm. right? Do you believe in miracles? When the the Russian team beat the, or, I'm sorry, the American team beat the Russians, um, that team was recently honored. So I mean, that, he's that guy. He's he's legendary. He's a Hall of Fame broadcaster, and he's also got this on his resume, which is even more interesting. But this is. Something we might see more of. Like, I, I don't know if we're going to – ESPN's making a big leap here. This feels like a last effort to make Monday Night Football relevant again in the way that it used to be relevant, and I don't know that it can be. I don't think anything can be what it used to be in the pre-internet age, no. and I don't think Monday Night Football is going to be any different. I will enjoy listening to Al Michaels and Peyton Manning. I like both those guys, but that's not going to bring back the feel of Howard Cosell or, you know, that, that – it's never going to quite be the same. No, and I think everybody – digest entertainment and TV and look it's other shows on now on Monday night so it's not like everybody in the whole fam just glued to the TV and we're all watching Monday night football like it's other shows on now like it's other things going on right on Monday night people are watching other things and that's how they do it um it's just amazing that if Peyton is able to pull this off and come off the couch and make this kind of money um, I'm excited for him I know him personally. He's a great dude. He's got a really, really big head, and I, I think it's hilarious that he's going to be on TV. It's hilarious. I, 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 I he's got an amazing personality. His family is awesome, and uh, I, I just I root for him. Why? Because he's a New Orleans guy. So that's my dude. All right, there you go. All right, so let's let's talk about this. Being born great versus becoming great, and and I wanted to bring this back because yesterday afternoon. Uh, on the afternoon drive show that I do here in, in Charlotte, myself, Corey, Corey Miller, pastor of pain, played for the Giants for nine years, Love uh, played in South Me Carolina. Me like the same person. Love that dude. I mean, one, that, that right there is my buddy. I was, I was actually telling my dad last night. We were talking about the show, and dad was saying, I like that guy. I really like that. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's my buddy. I, I like Corey a lot. But we got into this notion of are you born great or can you become great in sports? And it's a fascinating question. It started with I, I host the Charlotte Hornets pregame show. Charlotte Hornets are not a great team this year, but they're young, they're developing, and, and they, they seem like they have something cooking. And I threw the question out there, okay, this is a young team. They clearly need some more. 
And in an ideal world, you go draft a superstar. But is it possible there's a guy on this team who is yet to develop into a star player? Because you got 21-year-olds, 22-year-olds, you know, guys just getting into the league. And I said, Kawhi Leonard didn't become a star in this league until his fifth season. I mean, he didn't become a consistent 20-point-a-night scorer until his fifth season in the NBA. Giannis Antetokounmpo was an amazing athlete. But there's a reason 14 teams passed on him in the NBA draft before Milwaukee got to him mm-hmm. because plenty of guys have been big and athletic and never gone on to achieve a whole lot. Correct. You, you talked about potential being the most dangerous word in sports a That's little while it. ago. So I, I, my buddy Omar Gaither, I told you this, we were arguing two years ago when the Panthers drafted, maybe three at this point, when the Panthers drafted Christian McCaffrey. He said, you, you're, you're born a first-rounder. You don't just become a first-rounder. You've got to be born a first-rounder. I'm thinking, well, I mean, there's some baseline truth to that. You know, there's a reason that OG said that because he's a fourth rounder. <laughs> I'm tell him you said that. Uh, we'll get him to listen to this episode. But I, I just wonder. Yeah, I think there's got to be a baseline athleticism, Correct. you know, baseline skill set, some some DNA you probably have to have to an extent. But is there really an enormous difference between the first rounder and the second rounder? Because to me, that that difference may very well just be the work and the work ethic and and the development and time that it takes to become something great instead of just really good. I don't think that I buy into you have to be born great to be a first-round draft pick. Well, it's a lot of things that are unmeasurable, Kyle, that goes into ball sure, and athletics and all those other things. It's things that can't be measured. Now, when, when, when OG Omar Gaither says, all right, when you're born a first-rounder, I get it, size, speed, you, those are things you can't coach, hand size, just, you know, look at somebody like a Julius Peppers. Like, he's going to be a big human being his whole life. Right. Right? And he's going to have a chance. Yeah. Like, you see this guy, you're like, like, I want that to be my kid. Right? Like, everybody has th- those dreams and goals. All right? My, my children, they're going to be born with the word potential. Why? Their dad's got decent enough size. Their mom's a good athlete. Their dad, you know what I mean? Like, I played. My dad played. So, uncles played. So, you got potential. But potential is the dangerous word in sports, like I said, because you're not – you're not where you could be, and you're not as bad as you could be either. So right. you're like right there in the middle, and that's that's a dangerous, dangerous place. Um, but I, I think it, it does. You you are born with potential, and you are born with some gifts and things like that. But it's still take. It, it's all about the work, though. You got to put in the work. All right, the work, the time, the mental part of it, the edge, the competitiveness, the things that you can't measure about players and football players or basketball players. I I think that's what makes them. First rounders to greats, or like second rounders to maybe top guys, first round guys, you know, like, and and it's okay, like it's it's not a big deal. Like I was drafted in the second round, and it, I feel it's like the most disrespectful thing ever when Sean Payton says, "Oh, we drafted Roman in the second round, he was safe." I was like, "Safe? Damn! What, what the hell does that mean?" He was like, "Well, you know, you had size, you had great tape." He checked off all the boxes, two-parent home, father's a coach, smart, never got in trouble, great, good player, like really good leader on the team. He's safe. Like, why would you go wrong with that? I'm like, I mean, yeah, I get it. It makes sense, yeah. I mean, like, I get it. Yeah, it makes sense. I get it. But, like, but then you got guys who got drafted in front of me. It was, like, seven or eight, uh, six or seven DBs, safeties that were drafted in front of me in that same draft. Right. And luckily for me, I got to I outplayed all of them, and well, career-wise, length-wise, and uh, it's crazy. Antoine Bethea, who's drafted in the fifth round, was the guy that played longer than all of us. 
So it's all about the little things that really help separate you, being in the right environment, being on the right team, how smart you are, how savvy you are. Continue to learn and grow because just because once you come into, once you get drafted, that's just the beginning of this journey. It's all about the effort and the things and the, the time and time on task and what you put into it after that to continue to help you grow. So often they draft first-rounders based upon potential. He's not all the way there. Right. He still has room to grow. Like, that's what you do at first-rounders. Second-rounders, third-rounders, you're like, all right, well, we kind of already know who he is, right? And now I'm just trying to pick the best player who we kind of already know who they are. Well, it, it also – like, I, you and I have had this conversation. Two guys that stick out, again, that I've already mentioned, Kawhi Leonard, Giannis Antetokounmpo. These guys were taken at the very end of the lottery. Yeah. And, and in the NBA especially, there, there's, this, there's this mythology that, you know, you have to – if you don't get a pick in the top three, he'll never be a superstar. <laughs> if you don't get a pick in the top five, well, he's probably just going to be a rotational player. Like, this, it's not true. It's, it's, not. It's, it's not how that works. And, I, like, for I, the example I used yesterday, Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player I've ever seen. Right. But he's not the greatest athlete I've ever seen in the NBA. Not no. close. You know, no. Mike's a great athlete. Don't get me wrong. But my, he's, one of my best friends always used that. He's like, look, he said, if, you, if you're telling me you had LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, and Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan's probably the last pick. If you're just picking off athletics. Right, 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 right. If you just like, look, he's like, those other guys never got cut in basketball in junior high. Like, LeBron mm-hmm. James was always on the team. Right. Kobe Bryant was always on the team. Shaquille O'Neal, always on the team. Right. Like, at a, you look up Mike, considered the best player of all time. Got cut in basketball, like, and he in high school. In high school, that's right. what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, like, so he 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 has stuff in measurable things that you can't like, uh, like how much he wanted to be great, like, and working in the gym. Like, he probably has things that we don't talk about as much, or that you should that kind of helped him and elevate him, get him to where he is. I'm thinking like again of athleticism, right? You got right. because again going back to are you born great? You know, do you have the the great DNA? Larry Bird didn't look like a top five pick in the NBA. I mean, he went sixth overall, but like Larry Bird didn't look like a future Hall of Famer. Magic Johnson was a really good athlete. He wasn't an elite athlete. He was no. really big, and he was a great basketball player. And he always only dribbled with his right hand. We go back in time. This guy only dribbled with his right hand, like the whole time. Pretty much. I mean, he, he was. Very, <laughs> I mean, he could use both hands, you know, beautifully. Just didn't really want to. And, and so, like LeBron James is the greatest athlete I've ever seen on an NBA floor. I wrote that down too. Wilt, I, Wilt Chamberlain was an incredible athlete before yep. his time. That combination of size, strength, agility, like that. He, Michael Shaquille Jordan, O'Neal too. Oh, dominant athlete. Oh. But that alone doesn't make you great. Correct. And so that's why I push back on this idea of, are you born great? Can you become great? Yes, there needs to be some baseline stuff there. But after that, I mean, Kobe Bryant, there are so many guys with Kobe's length and, and his height and his vertical. Kobe Bryant was not one of the all-time great players mm-hmm. because of the way that he was born or his genetics. Yes, that helped. He was six six. You know, yeah. he was very athletic. But Kobe Bryant was a maniac, like maniacally worked and trained and developed and studied. That's the stuff it takes to be great. It does. Devin George told me this because I was we're going to I was at a charity basketball thing with him. And Devin George, if you don't know, was teammates with Kobe Bryant. D3 guy. Yep. Yep. For many years. Yeah, he was a D3 guy. And um, and I was like, you know, what, Devin, like what, what would you say was like one of the things that you were so impressed with about Kobe or like what made him? like, different than everybody is. He said, Roman, look, I'll be honest with you. Like, a lot of guys practice things in practice, and, like, you know, we go one-on-ones against each other. Hey, give me this type of look. All right, how defenses are trying to play me now. So, like, give me do this. And he said, I've never seen anybody work on a move, like, that day at shoot-around. 
Like, I'm trying to practice this and do this. And then, like, go out and do it, like, that night. He's like, dude, nobody else. Most people, like, wait, time, perfect it, make sure I got it down good before I try and, like, break it out in the game. He's like, Kobe was never like that. He'd, like, try something. And then I'd see him later on that night, a couple hours later, like, doing the same move. He's like, this dude, like, he didn't care. And then he just, that's just who he was. He just, he he tried something, he'd do it. And he just kept going, and that's how the game just continued to evolve. I mean, and you look, I mean, he shot left-handed a couple times. So it's just amazing to see greatness when when they got all the all the right gifts and then they got the work ethic and the mentality that goes along with it that just takes them to be at the greatest of all time type level. There, there's just so many football players that you could point to as well. Mm-hmm. Patrick Mahomes, what, what, two quarterbacks went before him in the NFL draft, if memory serves. I mean, Deshaun mm-hmm. Watson slipped to 12th in the NFL draft. Even I though, thought it was shocking. Well, we were all screaming, this is the best quarterback <laughs> in the draft. What are you doing? Like, I what? thought that. You know, and, and there's no reason for him. And the Bears freak out. They trade up. They go get Trubisky. But the point is, and again, like Lamar Jackson, it's a little bit different because there's a nasty history in the NFL of you know black dual threat quarterbacks not getting looked mm-hmm. at you mm-hmm. know, as bona fide pocket passers in the NFL and that – that's unfortunately still an attitude that is espoused by some people. Thankfully, I think it's dying off and going away. It is. That Lamar was always – Now a, everybody's like, I need me a quarterback that can run. Exactly. <laughs> and so Lamar Jackson fell a 32nd in, in the NFL draft. But, you know, he was an elite athlete, is an elite athlete. Oh. There's no question about that. But w- without the work that he's put in to become a passer in the NFL, yes. he's probably a second or third round draft pick, maybe not even the league right now. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, th- there's so many instances and examples of guys who – became great and I, I just don't buy this like Giannis Antetokounmpo Giannis Antetokounmpo I keep going back to that he's yeah. J- James Harden can say all he wants to about him just being big and strong <laughs> and dunking on people that dude became great because of the development and the work and the way that he grew himself into being great he, he wasn't just born yes it helps to be freakishly athletic there's no yes. question about it but it takes the work to. but get he's that. put the work in on the court and off the court he's changed his body he weighs a lot more He's more more filled out. Like he has trained and, and worked his way into where he is right now, and he continues to develop his shot. Uh, look, he's still very young in this league too. Like Giannis is a very young player still. So imagine when he gets the consistency to make some of these three point shots, not just at the top of the key, but sometimes from the corner and some other places where he's going to be, and learn how to be able to get his shot off the dribble. And not when he's dribbling, have to go all the way to the rack, but be able to boom, boom, two steps, get to your spot right around the free throw elbow line, may be able to pull up and make that jumper. If he's able to get that and develop that part of his game, I'm telling you, you got to watch out because he's so big. He can dribble, he can pass, and he's physically a dominating player. Last thing, and uh, we'll, we'll wrap this thing up, but talking about Patrick Mahomes there a second ago reminded me of something. Pat Mahomes was on HBO, or LeBron James' HBO show, and, and just, I think, it's. The shop, right, and just admitted that up until the middle of last season, he didn't know how to read defenses. And, like, he said, look, I, I could pick up on things in coverage, for instance. You know, I, I could spot coverages. But it wasn't until the middle of last year that I could pick up on little tendencies or, you know, read a defense at all. And, and that sounds surprising, but then you go back and you think, well, Brett Favre basically told everybody he didn't know what a cover two meant for the majority of his career or and I, I don't know how much Brett was messing with people right but but do we you can speak to this much better than I can do we as fans still not realize like the gaps between some of these guys and what they know and how cerebral they are or aren't at times and it's developmental don't get me wrong I mean it gets better as the, your career goes on but to hear some of the great players like him or Favre or somebody else say yeah we 
I didn't know how to do that. Is that common? Like, how how big a deal is that? First of all, that's not that common. But let me tell you the common denominator in the two names that you named. These both of these guys have cannons for an arm. Yep. So what they do is they they what they don't know they don't know, and it's never slowed them down because of their arm strength. So if I just see a guy. I'm just going to wing it in there, and I can throw it in the windows and things like, and be able to anticipate and just throw it. Like, they don't think. They just throw. They just rip it. Brett Favre probably would not be the best quarterbacks coach because he would like, what do you mean? Just just throw it. Hard. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, that's all he knows, right? Like, I mean, if and that's how he played the game. He just had fun and just let it rip. Yep. Right? And Mahomes has that same type of thing. Look, my, my college team, my college roommate, Charlie Pepper, was scouting for the Packers when Patrick Mahomes came out. And I asked him, what was the most impressive thing that you that out of this this class that's coming out? He said, this guy, John Ross, how fast he looks yep. on tape. I can't wait to see him run. And he said, and this quarterback out of Texas Tech, Patrick Mahomes, he said, this dude's arm is unreal. He's like, dude, I've never seen anything like it. I'm like, who? He's like, Pat, this guy, Patrick Mahomes. He said, he said, look, I had to go down with another scout. We watched him, and I was just like, enamored by it. He said, look, I went back and watched the tape. The tape looks terrible. He's like, he's his feet are all over the place. The offense is crazy. Like, it has no feel. He's kind of running around. It looks very high schoolish. But the dude can flat out rip a ball. And he's like, you're not going to see anybody else with this arm talent. And he's like, the timing is off. Like, he's throwing from all kinds of angles and positions. But you can't deny the talent. So, you know, him going to Kansas City was the best thing. Having Alex Smith there to kind of like help groom him because he wasn't ready. They just drafted him on potential, like you said, right? He's got all this potential and all this ability. We just got to learn how to harness it because you, you can't you can't coach what you what you can't coach. Like something that somebody's born with, like man, this dude just has an arm. Same thing with Brett Favre. So that's the common denominator when I say like all these other quarterbacks that got to learn and read coverages and be able to do all these other things. Like that's what they got to do. But these other guys that are different. They, they're just different for a reason. So they are – you coach those guys differently. You learn to play with those guys differently. He's – his – got to give Kansas City a lot of credit because that's that's just great scouting. It's great evaluating. Yeah. And because think about the fact that – And Cliff, they put great talent around him as well. Well, of course. But, like, look, Cliff Kingsbury. I mean, let's think – I mean, look, the Texas Tech quarterbacks <laughs> have been setting quarterback records for 15 years with the offense they've been running. You know, when once they started running the air raid, they were putting up stupid numbers out there. Yeah. But somehow, some way, Cliff Kingsbury never won more than eight games in a season with Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> and it makes you wonder how that guy, A, landed at Arizona as the head coach of the Cardinals, but B, how, how was that possible running that offense with the kind of talent that we now know Patrick Mahomes has? You know, one down year I could get. You know, but at the same time, how 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 was there not better results at Texas Tech with you, that guy quarterback? Because you can score sixty five and then give up seven. Well, that's true, and they I mean, did that. They did it. Well, they, <laughs> that's the thing that they've done. That's for sure. They've done that. So it, they don't play any defense in the Big Twelve. It's just really weird. Yeah, and very frustrating to watch from the outside looking in. That's why everybody's always talking about Texas is back. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. they don't play no defense. So that's true. That's true. I, I, but on the Mahomes thing, I just really. I really enjoy young players coming in and changing the game. I think that young quarterback class of that year is come in the NFL and changed the game. It's really changed the narrative of what everybody perceives what a winning quarterback is or what it's supposed to look like or what it's supposed to act like, and it's completely different. All right, everybody brought into the Mitchell Trubisky being the top quarterback, this, this, and this, and it, it hadn't it hadn't played out like that. You got Patrick Mahomes. You got Deshaun Watson. You got – 
It was uh, it was Trubisky's second overall, and uh-huh. and then it was Patrick Mahomes who went tenth, and then Deshaun Watson twelfth. That was it. That was it. Mm-hmm. That was it. So yeah. that's that. That's why the tank. And I, I can't get into this because I'll I'll it'll, we'll take us another hour. But I mean this is <laughs> this is why the, the tanking thing pisses me off the way that it does. It, it, it's ridiculous. Don't even bring it up, Kyle. It's ridiculous. It's, I mean, it, it's so stupid. It's that <laughs> tanking does not work in the NFL, and you don't have to tank for Trevor. Tank for if I hear tank for Trevor one more time, <laughs> I mean I, I like the kid. He's I think he's going to be good. I really do. But how much more evidence do you need? The, the the MVP this year was picked 32nd overall, and the guy who just won the quarter the, the Super Bowl last year's MVP was picked 10th overall. The thing is this. It's all about the organization putting and getting behind the players that they have. Do you have the vision? Do you have the roster? Are you everybody pulling in the same direction? It's so much easier. Like it's so much easier to all of a sudden go from the bottom to the top in the NFL because of free agency and the draft. Right. It doesn't doesn't have to take that long in the NFL no. to get good again. No. And uh, you. And it's not like basketball where like all the best players go to like the big markets, right? If you have the twenty fifth <laughs> overall pick, you should still be able to get a day one starter with the twenty fifth overall pick. Yes. No without question. No question. If you if you're if your scouting department is worth a shit, you should be able to find a day one starter, twenty fifth overall. I mean, look at the number of guys who've gone on to become multi time pro bowlers, Super Bowl champs, all pros that that didn't go in the top ten draft picks. Thirty two percent of last year's NFL rosters were undrafted guys. I want to say last year the percentage was something like 14% of rosters were first-rounders. Everybody else, that was like 85% of everybody else's rosters, you know, were were guys second round beyond to undrafted and whatnot. No one's saying that special players shouldn't be sought after. But to pretend like you can't build a team without tanking for a quarterback first or or second overall. Or trading all your players and getting like three first-round picks. That's like the new thing to do. Even though like – that still doesn't matter. That's not. That doesn't guarantee you anything. You know, there was a. I'll send you this, and I keep forgetting to bring it up. But there was an actual study done. I think it was the University of Chicago, maybe, where uh, some some economists looked at the NFL draft and statistically determined that trading up in the top, I think it was the top ten, but definitely the top five, is a terrible idea. <laughs> I mean, giving away future draft picks to trade up and go chase a player like they, the data is there empirically. They show. Yeah, this is overwhelmingly a really bad idea. It doesn't work out most of the time. It hasn't worked out. I don't know any team that it's really worked out for, like longevity-wise. The Saints gave up everything for for Ricky Williams. I mean, that's one of the most notorious deals that that Mike Ditka pushed for. And I I liked Ricky. Ricky was a good player. Ricky was good. He just phased out of New Orleans. It was just he just. But Ricky was so young, and he didn't. He couldn't handle. And he didn't like all the people. And it's it's a different place. He liked to smoke. Maybe you should get on this new CBA. Yeah, maybe so. Hey, that's a good place to stop. We'll do this again next week. Uh, good stuff. Hey, man, always, Kyle. Appreciate it, baby. Absolutely. Roll that's the Clubhouse Podcast. That's Roman Harper. I'm Kyle Bailey. We'll do it again next week. Episode 5, at least for right now. Paul Feinbaum. Paul. SEC Network, ESPN. Our I buddy. love Paul. He's I know Paul us. from like before Paul was Paul. And you called Paul out when you were on his show about two <laughs> weeks ago. So he will get some get back on the next episode of the Clubhouse Podcast.